Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, John Schwab here from Curtain Call, and welcome to episode 93 of the Curtain Call Theater Podcast, the podcast that brings you backstage as close as you possibly can be, often while the shows are actually happening, to meet the people that make that theater happen. You can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other fine podcast streaming services, so, you know, go back there and find them and fill your boots, and if you have a spare 30 seconds, please rate and review the podcast to help us be more discoverable to listeners who haven't heard about us yet. But now for this week's podcast. I'm actually away on holiday this week, recording this in Florida. I do apologize. Uh, so Curtain Call's Theo Bosquet has jumped in for me and chatted with George Richmond Scott, the director of Blood Wedding, which is the inaugural production at the Omnibus Theater in their autumn season. Theo and George talked about uh, his career as a vocal coach, how that role has helped him develop as a director, his time at the Sheffield Crucible, assisting on Everybody's Talking About Jamie, why he chose Blood Wedding as his next project, and why he set it in London in this reimagining of a classic piece. Have a listen. Hello. I'm at the Clapham Omnibus Theatre, sitting in uh, one of the dressing rooms as the rain, the very rare rain this summer, um, pitter-patters on our, on our glass roof. Um, and I'm sitting here with George Richmond Scott, uh, who's the director of the uh, inaugural production in the Omnibus's autumn season, which is Blood Wedding. Um, George, hello. Hi there. Thank you very much for talking to Curtain Call. Um, you've had a very interesting uh, career to date, which has in- included, um, I think, 15 years of work as a voice coach. So we'll get on to that um, in a minute, because I think there's lots of interesting sort of strands that we can, th- th- that we can get into. But, but firstly, tell us, um, tell us why uh, you wanted to direct Blood Wedding, first of all. Mm, well, I've always loved the play since I was about 16, and it was on the A-level syllabus at that time, and Lorca still is, I think, but not that play. And, um, and so we, we studied it, and I was really captivated by just the weirdness of it, I think. It's such a bizarre, surreal, different world that he writes about and conjures up to anything that I hadn't experienced of, so I felt really 
just excited and seduced by the world of it and also by the language of it although obviously I was reading it in translation and um, translations vary massively but um, I just remember loving the way the characters express themselves in this really intense poetical metaphorical language that kind of reflected the natural world and the environment that they existed in um, the, the production is billed as being told through a female lens. Tell us what that means a little bit. Yeah, I suppose it would be more accurate to say that it's um, it's skewed to the viewpoint of the female characters and specifically to that of the mother, who she kind of makes a big splash in the original at the beginning and then she just doesn't disappear but she, she sort of bookends it I suppose and she then has a massive kind of very intense scene at the end um, when the bride comes back and um, I was just interested to see how we could have have her woven more through the, more consistently through the story um, and there's obviously a whole section where she's not there and um I was reading it and thinking about this, and I just I'm particularly interested in her as a character and what she holds in herself and why she behaves the way she does, and um, and I had the idea of the actor who was playing that part doubling up with in Lorca's original the beggar woman in our version the homeless woman, but basically she's a personification of death. Um, so the mother and death are the same actor, and in one sense they're the same character. Uh, or two sides of a, of a character. One side is the kind of loving, nurturing, protective, and the other is the, yeah, the destructive. I'm going to end you. <laughs> That's an interesting tension, I guess, that sits, um, at, well, sounds, certainly sounds like it sits at the heart of the production um, and, and the play. You've also said it in London as well, haven't you? Yeah, Isn't yeah. T- tell us about that decision. Mm, well, I... When I spoke to Marie, when I first met her, the artistic director of this theatre, the Omnibus, um, we talked about maybe Lorca, and they're really keen on things being twisted and reimagined for this venue. Um, I think partly because the venue itself used to be something else and has been reimagined. It was the old town town library of Clapham, and now it's a a theatre and an art space. So she talked about... um, not just doing somebody else's translation of it, but actually reimagining it, um, which provoked me to kind of think about what, how I might do that. And because I'm not Spanish and I haven't lived in Spain, it felt like a sensible step to bring the story to London, which is where I was born. Uh, and I've got a very strong sense of what it is to live in the city and to be from here. So that, that didn't feel... That, that felt like a kind of sensible thing to do. And also, in a way, I suppose, because the story's so um, strange and I think sometimes it doesn't always land very easily with um, a British audience, it felt like it might help help people to connect to the story and, and, and as a way into the story to bring it to here and also to bring it to now and not to be telling it, you know, this 1930s um, characters, but people who are living in, in the here and now But then I started to think, oh, um, am I going to um, pull it so far away from what it has been that it's it's going to to destroy it or spoil it? So it seems to me then, again, right at the beginning, that I wanted the characters to stay Spanish or have Spanish heritage. And so I just had the idea of it being kind of 
based around a Spanish restaurant in London, and the mother and the son run the restaurant. Um, all the mother's dead husbands sort of set it up when they first moved over here, and uh, the other characters are, are sort of radiate, radiating around them as kind of people they're connected to or related to who live in the city or who, who go backwards and forwards between here and Spain. Yeah. Um, we were talking actually before we started recording about um, the Young Vic production of Yerma. Um, mm. Which is one of the other plays, I guess. In, it, it, it's a, it's loosely a trilogy, isn't it? With with Bernardo Alba um, and Yama and yeah, I, I I think maybe in terms of sort of some themes and, okay. and so on, it is. Uh, I don't not necessarily in terms of story, but no. um, they're certainly his three really famous, yeah, like classic plays, aren't they? The the, the ones we see most often, and of course, um, Yama particularly was um, uh, an incredibly uh, modern updating mm. of, of, of that story, and um, it, it was a good example of a, of a of something we've seen a lot recently, which is um, classics being very vigorously mm. brought up to date mm. uh, without too much uh, nervousness about completely rewriting the rewriting the text. Yeah. Um, how do you? I mean, do you think it matters? Do, do you think sort of Textual um, uh, loyalty, if for, for want of a better word, is, is is important, or do you think it's more important to capture the spirit of the uh, of, of the emotions of the characters of the of the themes and sort of you know um, communicate that to a modern audience? I don't know if any of that's important if you're going to completely reimagine something. I think it's you're, you're making a, a new piece of art. Dare I say it? Um, I think it's absolutely essential um, to acknowledge where it's come from and to kind of respect the person who originally wrote the, the first story. Um, and, and when people don't do that, that's, that's really <laughs> offensive. Um, I think, but, but I, I think to, to me, it's exciting to, to reimagine something and, and to make something new out of, 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 of something else. And... Um, I think it's better in a way if it's a really big, bold change. And if, if it sort of goes halfway, then I think it's sort of more noticeable that that's what you're doing. Yeah. Whereas something like Simon Stone's Yerma, which was such a beautiful, incredible piece of work, was it was like a different play. It was clearly inspired by um, the original and the, the central character kind of felt fairly intact. But it felt like a whole different piece of art to me um, and, and, and so I was interested and excited to see connect it back to where it come from but it, I could see, appreciate it as a completely separate thing yeah. in, in its own right and then that worked well for me subjectively as an audience member and, um, and it, it made me feel um, I suppose it, it gave me confidence to, to be fairly bold myself although I would say with, with our story um, I've tried to Preserve is not the right word at all, but I've tried to keep the integrity of the poetry uh, in in the way the characters talk and express their desires and their their intentions, um, but but just reimagine it for people who are living in a an urban environment right now, yeah. rather than a rural Spanish one in the nineteen thirties. So um, we haven't kind of um, removed the poetry in order to make it contemporary. In fact, I've been really I've, gone to great lengths not to do that 
for, for, for what it's worth, I, I don't agree with the school of thought that is um, if if the play is reimagined to a certain degree, then it no longer then it sort of ceases to be the play. I think the key thing is communication and and, and um, eliciting emotion and connection, and 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 that surely has to take precedence over uh, over what can be a rather sort of dry fealty to the original mm. and it feels like when the, the, the new generation of theatre makers yourself included um, have just really kind of taken the classics by the throat and as a result endeared a whole generation of theatre goes right. to them in a way that yeah. you know maybe they were previously seen as as, as, as a bit of a, 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 a sort of a, something you had to see rather than something mm. you wanted to see and now mm. for me anyway it's it's just great that we've got this um, flourishing of productions that really are bringing the bang up to date. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, um, let's talk about your uh, your uh, career to date because you started, I think, as a voice coach. I did. Yeah. Tell us how that sort of came about. And what, <laughs> what, what well, if I'm really honest, I started as an actor uh, a long time ago and did that for about five years, right. and um, and then realised that I couldn't stand auditioning and hadn't got as far as I wanted to so I retrained when I was young quite young as a voice coach you tend to be a bit older to do that job um, and um, that just seemed to slot, slot into place really easily it seemed to fit with my personality and my life and uh, I got work while I was still training and, and so it felt, it, was, it felt like the right thing yeah. before it had been an appalling struggle knocking at doors which were very firmly closed and suddenly the doors or the voice doors all opened up so um, what, what, what does a voice coach do exactly <laughs> I mean I, I, I'm speak sure. up <laughs> speak clearer yeah 50 pounds please no 100 now <laughs> um, the, the, a voice coach is, is is there to support the the actors and the story and the director um, in terms of, of things being as clear as they possibly can be, um, as, as connected as they possibly can be, in terms of the voice and the body and, and the and the, psych- and the voice into the psychology, I suppose. So they have to be really careful not to tread on the director's toes. Um, and then also just technically and practically, the other side of things like, you know, uh, can we hear you in the worst seat in the house when you're being really quiet and all of that stuff? And if not, how can we adjust things without you sounding fake? so that you're, you're giving everybody their money's worth. Um, so there's a sort of really practical, straightforward side to the job, and then there's a, there's a sort of much more creative, connected into the acting side of the job, um, which is... And, and both are fun, actually, both are fun, um, but, but the, the latter's where my heart lay and still lies, and, um, and that's, that's then a really delicate dance around the work the director and the other creators are doing, because... You have to. I think with every job you do, as a, a in any of these roles, like a voice coach or perhaps a movement director, where you're kind of coming in and, and working alongside somebody who's perhaps steering the project, you've just got to be really sensible and sensitive, and also in a way create your space for your work each time afresh and, and find the room for it, and also convince people of the the, the need for it and the worth for it. And you might have been brought in to kind of solve one particular kind of actor's lack of training or whatever, but if you're canny, you can end up 
doing really interesting, useful work with the whole company. You just had to kind of, yeah. And it must, I would imagine it really helps your work as a director to have come from that background, or, or, or does it not? I think it, I hope it does. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly still aware of those things, although I have to be honest, the, the couple of times that I've had a voice coach as a director more recently, I've really loved it. And I've really enjoyed being able to switch off that part of my brain up to a certain point and just focus in on the other stuff, which is relatively new to me, and let somebody else um, be, be that person in the room. And, and when I've worked with good voice coaches, which I'm, I'm lucky to have done, uh, it's such a pleasure. And also, I, I hope, and I hope this will always continue, I value that role because I know what it is and I know what it feels like to do it. And, and I hope I've given them space and agency and, you know, full positive permission to, to do what they need to do and collaborate properly, you know, not just kind of come in and give a few notes. Do you think... Um, uh actors today need more help vocally than in the past it, it, it's a classic thing that you always read in uh you know from certain commentators who 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 say that that em- not enough emphasis is put on um you know a, a, a projection to, to to be to be I, basic about it but if actors have a training if, from a drama school which they don't always necessarily do and some brilliant actors don't have one but if they do, they tend to do a massive amount of voice. It's like quite a big part of the um, the process of being trained. So it's not that the work isn't happening, and it's not that the work isn't good, because I, I know it is, because not just because I've done it, but because I've worked alongside brilliant voice teachers and voice coaches. So I think, I think tastes change. I think this is a, maybe not controversial thing to say, but an obvious thing to say, but I think very often the people who make those criticisms tend to be... Um, actors and other people in the industry who have got to a certain age where perhaps your hearing isn't as good as it used to be and so you're not actually hearing things in the way that you once heard them um, and you're then kind of making the assumption that the fault lies in the young actor rather than in your own ears. So I think there is that, and that sounds a bit silly but I do think that's a thing. If you look at where the, the comments like that come from they're nearly always from people who are quite old uh, or often are. Um, there are loads, I, I, I don't even want to start talking about kind of mobile phones and, peop- and all of that and people not communicating verbally anymore because we all know that that's the way things are now and that's just that that's not going to change probably anytime soon or at least it certainly is the way things are. So we've just got to roll with that and work with it. And I, it doesn't mean that people can't also be on voice and <laughs> vocally connected. So um, I, think, I think we can do both. But m- maybe, there's, maybe there's more of a call for the work now than they used to be because we talk to each other a bit less um, but I, I don't know it's, it's too easy to kind of say all of that really and, and I know loads of young actors who've got brilliant voices so yeah <laughs> um, Let's uh, talk about your work in Sheffield which mm. uh, so you obviously worked as a voice coach and then, and then uh, decided to to move more into directing and yeah I'd done, I'd done bits and pieces on the side been up to the Edinburgh Festival and directed projects in drama schools that started out as a kind of I'm there as the voice teacher and they want to make sure that I'm using being used as fully as possible with my hours I'm being paid for so why don't you just do that project over there and we won't get someone else in for it and I'm like absolutely great fantastic and then I got to a point where I just sort of sat back into its stock and realised that what was making me most happy was the directing 
not that I didn't love the voice work too, but that that was what was really making me feel passionate about going to work. So um, I had a conversation about it with uh, somebody else I was actually teaching alongside who had just decided to go to Birkbeck College to do the theatre directing MFA. And she was she's not as old as I am, but she was mature and um, you know had had a career as an actor and and whatnot. And and she just decided to do it anyway and and, and take the risk and jump in. So um, that inspired me to, to do the same. And uh, I applied for the course. And um, so the second year of the course is in a theatre, which is the most kind of amazing appealing thing about the course is you're not in a that was the other thing is I didn't want to go to a, a drama school for a year to trying to be a director I and mean, half of them I taught in as a voice coach and it would be really uncomfortable and um but, but Birkbeck's different because you're at Birkbeck College or you're in a theatre training training to do it which was it just felt like exactly the right thing to do and um I was just very lucky that I managed to get to go to the theatre I wanted to go to most which was the Crucible in Sheffield um at first because Daniel Evans was running it and, and I admire him and his work and um, it just felt like a very exciting, eclectic place to go and learn. Uh, and then I found out that he was going, um, and, but that Robert Hastie was taking over and I had, by pure good chance, assisted him as a, a first-year um, placement on my training. And so I was able to contact him and say, would you be interested in having <laughs> yeah, a placement, even though it's your first year and you probably want a bit of space? Um, <laughs> and I think because we'd, we'd gotten okay, uh, that he said yes. And um, so, yeah, I, I got to go up to the Crucible and I, I completely fell in love with Sheffield. It's the most amazing city. I cannot recommend it enough. If you haven't been, you should definitely go. Um, and the Crucible is also, it's the biggest theatre complex outside of London I believe the three theatres together and um, and that Rob's taking over there was this incredible new energy and kind of buzz uh, in, in the air as well so it just felt like a, an entirely thrilling experience to be up there and um, I could go on about this probably for the next two hours if you let me well the, 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 probably the production that um, uh, made I guess the biggest splash uh, during your time there which you worked on was, was Everybody's Talking About Jamie um, Tell us about you know your involvement in that project and and how it came to being and then watching it become this big West End show that it yeah. has. Well, it was it was a complete and glorious surprise because I started off the placement knowing what what the three big shows were that I was going to assist on as part of my training, and it was Lady Chatterley's Lover directed by Philip Bream, and, and that I was I was excited about that because I like the idea of doing a classic adaptation, and I, I knew his work and he's brilliant. And then it was Julius Caesar assisting Rob Robert Hasty, and that was also really exciting. And um, I couldn't wait to work with him again on a really big stage. And then there was this new musical called Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which I knew nothing about at all. Didn't know Jonathan's work because uh, a lot, lot of it he's done in New York. And um, I, I didn't know the story, and so I just thought, well, that'll be fun, you know, and it'll be a bit of a laugh, and it'll, it'll come and it'll go, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I can say I've worked in the musical. But I realised really, really quickly when I went into the rehearsal room that this was going to be something quite special. Um, and just the scale of it as well, the, the size of... The, 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 it was a big company of actors and a really big creative team, which at first was a little bit alarming. Like, how am I going to fit in and do anything of use here with all of these people who are already kind of set up? But they were so warm and welcoming and, and, and that that didn't turn out to be an issue at all. And in fact, there was a huge amount of work to do because it's such a, a musical is such a big beast. 
a big musical. And um, it just had an, it had an amazing kind of um, a buzz around it from the very beginning, actually. And it was taken into the, like, the heart of the audience in Sheffield really, really quickly. Um, we were only played for like two and a half weeks when we were, we were at the Crucible like, at the beginning of last year. But it, it packed out, and we had to. They, they close some of the theatre off when they're doing new works. They, they shrink it from 900 to 600 seats, and they had to expand it right back out to 900, and it still was completely full. And, um, and we got every kind of person coming in to watch it, all ages, and um, the, the, the standing ovations at the end of it. I, I, and, and I was also, because I was very still kind of watching the story like a new thing each time I was you know completely moved by it and it's just, it tends to make people laugh a lot and then it tends to move people a great deal in the second half and people often kind of dissolve into tears and then there's this amazing kind of positive surge of yes it's alright to be who you are in life at the end and everybody leaps to their feet and um, it really is it's kind of it's a very physical experience to watch the show and I was still watching it in that way all the way through Sheffield um, and so I, yeah, I, I got kind of completely caught up in the, in in this beautiful, glittery, um, very very positive story and, and, and message. So uh, yeah, it, it was it was amazing. <laughs> I just remember saying at the end of it, end of the Sheffield run, if this does ever go anywhere else, Jonathan, I'd love to work on it. And uh, and I sort of thought, well, you know, I'm still training, and the chances are that somebody else will be brought in. But that's fine, you know, fingers crossed. And then it happened, and um, and and, we, and I got to do it. So I felt very very lucky, and um, very proud as well to be be part of it. What an incredible project to be involved in. Um, and I mean, <laughs> I, I struck, it's almost hard to believe that that you got to work on something like that as part of a training scheme, essentially, or as part yeah. of a course. That yeah. this was, uh, I mean, you literally, you cannot think of a better no. training ground. <laughs> I can't. No. And what and what a great sort of um, example of the power of vocational training as well. That yeah. actually, you know, for for anyone working in theatre, being in the theatre is, of course, the best place to do that being yeah. in rehearsal rooms being around people doing it not not to at all uh, sort of suggest that, that the work of drama schools is, is not effective no 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 those, some of those courses are amazing but that element mm. is also key yeah and, and to, to understand every not that I do know, I know every facet inside out but to be able to work in every department of a theatre as well and to kind of be in an open plan office with the marketing department and with uh, the accounts department and with you know everybody who, and the education department, everybody who's involved in putting the show on and, and every every kind of facet of it, um, it yeah, you you accelerate your learning um, incredibly, and it just makes you kind of yeah. I suppose voice coaching is is in no way a narrow thing, but I suppose it's got a kind of focused viewpoint to it, if you like, um, whereas. Directing has felt, it feels to me like if you're going to do a good job, you've got to try and have a panoramic view of, of a whole production and, and story and, and every kind of bit of it, uh, whilst still being able to kind of z- zero in on detail when you need to. And so the training um, at, at Beck and at the Crucible and, and still feels like it's happening now I'm still learning a huge amount on Jamie feels like it's just grabbed hold of my brain and is pulling the sides of it wider so that I <laughs> can kind of see a bigger picture than I used to be able to see and, and that yeah it's 
it's, there's no exaggeration to say that the, the training has changed my brain and the way that I look at not just theatre but life fantastic um, so what's the plan now what's <laughs> what, what, what does the future look like you know I know that, that, that's always a difficult question to anybody working in theatre because mm. of course it's uh, it's very hard to predict but um, but yeah in, in, in a sort of ideal world what what you know where do you go from here I guess obviously blood wedding immediately but then yeah blood wedding starts on Monday <laughs> rehearsals so that's <laughs> occupying most of my conscious mind at the moment um, and I've got a couple of ideas two or three plays I'd love to direct after that um, I won't talk about them now because they're kind of you know little kernels that need to be watered and planted planted somewhere actually so um, they're, 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 I've got some kind of immediate desires in terms of what I'd like to do next and um, I'm going to hopefully stay with Jamie for a while as well and keep working on that um, which um, is, is exciting in the next year they're going to be making a film as well so that would be kind of fueling the excitement around the theatre productions and you'll be involved hey it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theatre Directory a program of maestro music Rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds if you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.